0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So thank you. All. And this will be a conversation, uh, hopefully trying to uh, weave together uh, a number of the themes that have been emerging in these conversations this morning. Uh, A main theme, and David really highlighted it, is the pressing urge to get our quality up and our costs down and not tweaking it, but I don't know about the UC system. Our costs at Johns Hopkins are probably about 20 or 30% higher than our competitors, so huge reductions in, 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 in our cost. And leveraging the assets that you have in the UC health system, but it seems that one of the emerging themes are breaking down silos, and though we do research perhaps thinking of more research as a applied research, as I had mentioned, thinking like an engineer to say, we're going to tackle this problem of cost or of care delivery issues and find out how to do that and bring re- diverse researchers in to do this. So might um, begin to ask all the panelists, how might you see the UC systems, or from your view, beginning to take on this tact, this idea of quality not being whack-a-mole, but it begins as a more it's, it's a way of a management system that you embed in your organizations and draws upon these assets that you have, these very rich assets across the, the system. So Sheila.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. You know, i um... When you were doing your presentation, there was a a couple of things that came to mind. One is, so at UCSF, our um, strategic plan, there's a division of it that says um, building a a culture of continuous improvement. And I actually think every employee, resident, trainee um, should be involved in that. So it's not just nurses, physicians, pharmacists, but... And so I would start with measuring actually what are the number of improvement projects, whether they actually go through the process or not, that everyone does. So from the environmental services person to the lab person, how many of those improvement processes? Because some of those are actually going to stick and some of those are actually going to reduce costs. But there's relevance to the people that are doing those that I think moves them to improve things that get to a higher level of being able to tackle some of the things that we talked about today, relevant to value-based payments and those kinds of things. So I think that... You know a perfect example was um, we have an evidence based program at UCSF and it's nurses ac- across the the bay area and one change in terms of patient engagement from one nurse a $500 change yielded an amazing result in patient satisfaction so I think if we don't start to but it was relevant for her it was relevant to the patients and uh, and I think that was what what was most important so I think I've learned if you don't get everybody in the game um, every it's not going to work in terms of sustainability going forward
0: and then she I would say, and then how do you spread that $500 intervention across the UC system, right? So Julie knows about it, or all the rest of the, kids, the schools know about it. Yeah,
2: Sorry. yeah. well, I, I can take that. So you know, I, I think you know, as I reflect on this morning and some of the comments that you made, uh, one of the things that we need to do is really is to change the narrative, and I, I think that will go a long way to answering some of these questions. Uh, you know. I think a narrative that really relates to employers, to patients, to insurers, is exceptionalism. You know, we we talk a lot about accountable care and value and population health, but I bet if you ask everybody in the room, they'll give you different definitions. But I think people recognize exceptionalism when, when they do see it. And one of the things about academic medical centers is that we are exceptional. People do recognize that. What we don't do a good job of is actually demonstrating that. And so what we need to show is that our research and our educational mission is part of an investment that's transformative that leads to exceptionalism. Because we're able to leverage the assets of our multidisciplinary interprofessional teams in a way that that you're discussing that allows us to get the results that we need. And so we need to translate those investment dollars into actual results into the patients that we're designed to take care of, which is very complex care. At the same time, uh, you know, exceptionalism means that you are engaging in a very transformative process. What what is transformative process for for academic medical centers? It has to, again, do with our research and educational mission. So we're going to be talking later today about big data. Uh, How does that relate to precision health? Uh, How does that relate to uh, really reducing the cost because we're developing innovative technologies that connect the provider with the patient? I think that's the future that we're really talking about. And so if we can change the narrative, develop our own measurement set, sets uh, where uh, you, you know, other organizations outside of us see us as an investment into the future, much in the same way that NASA is, Yeah, we want to journey towards zero. We want to land on the moon. But think about all the discoveries that will occur on our way there. Point.
3: Right. Laura? Thanks, Peter. So I think the experience we've had of trying to work across the five UC campuses and sort of create the um, Athena Breast Health Network, I think, is, and, and some of the products and services we're trying to roll out has been a really important um, learning for us and I think has led to our wanting to build, uh, to put forward this collaboratory for accelerating learning in medicine that Christine Gilbranson talked about this morning. And I think it comes down to this fundamental need that we have uh, to really transform the practice of medicine, much like what David said. And really, we're better to do that than the UC systems themselves. We, you're right. We do have the intellectual capital, and we do have the power, and we're public hospitals, and we actually have the right DNA to be able to take on these challenges. Why shouldn't we figure out how to deliver a great quality care at Medicare prices. I mean, as you said earlier, Peter, it's about having an aspiration. But let's be clear. We're still practicing medicine the way we did in the 1970s. Where is our integrated quality system that's a routine byproduct of care? Why are we still collecting data a million times and sharing it almost never? Why aren't we focusing our teams and efforts on collecting the data once and making it available for quality improvement, for registries, for trials, you know, for payment, for understanding what our costs are, we aren't doing that. So this is an effort for us, uh, and I, I think it's really exciting. And I think you see care as a place to do it. Karen has been instrumental in helping us. You know, a lot of my the team is here. I think it's about mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets, and big data is only one piece of it. But you got to have the right data to the big data sets. And we actually are not part of the evidence generation system, and we could be. It's such an exciting opportunity, truly. And uh, that's these kind of one-source checklists. This is the idea of, like, what's critical to your own practice? Why is that not collected in the process of care? Making, as a tool, gave me the idea of the common tab in Epic, why, or whatever system you happen to have up. Why don't we know that? And why don't we know what the out-of-pocket cost is? And so I think that that's one thing. The second thing I think we need to do is think about having bundled services. And we're going to experiment with that. You know, and I can, I can tell you that you know, part of it, there's not enough drive for innovation to find better ways to do things. I can tell you, across the UC, there are many experts. And one of the great features about experts is they know how to do less. And precision medicine means doing more for some people, but by and large doing a lot less for others. And that's where the cost savings can come. So I think for us to start creating bundled services and say, how are we going to use these resources? A whole different way of practicing medicine. But get us the data we need. Unleash the power of physicians to be innovators and let them solve the problem trying to figure out how to create resources and products that are more cost-effective so that people aren't paying $3,000 out of pocket. Um, I think this is something we have to be really aware, well aware of. No longer can we as physicians pretend that we're immune from knowing what the cost of care is. You know, I, I saw a woman who was, had to put $6,000 down for a, a breast biopsy for something she surely didn't need. She's a single mother, two kids. That's a quarter of her income. Really? Why are we doing that? We we need to be part of the conversation, and we need to empower. We need tools and culture that empowers us to solve those problems for our patients. What an exciting way to practice! I think all physicians would really welcome this change. It's just, it's time. It's time for us to develop a whole new way of practice. Uh, integrate care and research. Make learning part of every our everyday business. I think that's truly exciting, and we're up to your challenge, David.
4: Um, So um, I agree with what you say, and and most of the people in our way uh, are my age and older. I consider young me and everything below me. I include me all the time, so it gets a little different. I think we need to empower our young people. When you look at who can work in teams and who can make this happen and who isn't stuck, it, it really isn't you're a seasoned veteran. There's many experts in our system, and that's great, but what you need to do to solve these problems really are teams and young people. And then you need to have leaders that embrace that. At UC Davis, everybody had to have two goals this year as chairs, but next year they have to have a third goal that includes another department or another school. So they can't just be in their own department uh, making things happen, because I think that's what we saw at Hopkins. The minute we started partnering with anesthesia, something happened. When you tried to do it in one department, it was hard. I do think we have to appreciate it. In this room, we appreciate it. When we go back home, I'm not sure we appreciate quality improvement. I think we do complain a lot. Uh, And I think we don't appreciate the clinicians at our place who aren't going to do basic science or translational research. They're the ones that actually could do this for us. They're the ones in the primary care clinics. They're the ones answering the phone calls. They're the ones that are doing those more simple things, You know, taking blood pressures in the clinic and making sure people eat right and and making sure you take care your pills, which is not as exciting as maybe uh, using robotic surgery in the OR or that, but they're the key, I think, to solving healthcare problems. So when you go back, I think we have to lose our elitist attitude at academic physicians and decide that there's a group of people working at all our institutions that are doing great work and that's going to take care of patients so we can have the money to do innovative things. And my last point is culture. I sent an email to Jack last August, because I run the dean's group. I said, we have a culture problem. We all have competed for many years. I trained at UCLA. I worked at UCSD. I was a sub-intern at UCSF, and now I'm at UC Davis. We all want to win. I want to be better than UCSD and UCSF all the time. And we all have theme songs saying, you know, we're going to be the best. So we have to learn how to say UC Health is the best. And that's what we got to do. And how you do that while you maintain your individuality, I think, is going to be our challenge. Uh, We all like each other in this room but I know what we all say when we go home. Great. You
0: know, Robert, your comment about this exceptionalism, I think, is true. The tension is the market, and we're seeing at Hopkins, isn't buying that we're exceptional anymore, and we're seeing more and more AMCs getting carved out of neural networks because our costs are too high, and so there's some urgency. And I'd like to ask the panel to comment on this tension between, many of you said there's this, let a 1,000 flowers bloom, get everybody you know, engaged in this work. But at the end of the day, we're also going to need focused problems to show we move the needle on something, whether it's a per member per month cost or some quality. So what would be your one or two moonshots that you might do, or things that you need to do concretely different, and how might you think about going to implement them in the UC system? you can all go around. Okay.
2: Well, I'll, I'll start since, uh, since you're, you raised my name. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, it requires uh, continued engagement with some of the employers and payers out there. I'll give, I'll give you one example. Uh, Leapfrog. Okay. So, so Leapfrog, uh, you know, as many of you know, is, is a you know, conglomerate of a number of Fortune 500 companies. They, they have a partners advisory group, uh, committee that advises their board. But just until recently, they started adding on health systems. So Piedmont joined about a year and a half ago. UCLA joined about about a year ago. And it's led to some really interesting conversations. Uh, Right now, they're they're sort of experimenting with uh, a measurement set around appropriateness of care around surgical procedures. And what they want to know is how, with each and every procedure that you have, how are you assessing appropriateness of care? And uh, I arranged a, you know, a conference call with, uh, with their staff because it was kind of intriguing because you know how do you do that on 25,000 operations per year you know, with, within, our, within our health system and to explain sort of the programmatic approach that we had. But eventually I, sort of, I asked them, well, what problem are we really trying to solve? <laughs> and uh, that led to a conversation where the employers are seeing uh, cases where they, they have uh, an employee, they go to hospital A, they say they need. A procedure. They go to hospital V, which might be an academic medical center, and they say, "Oh, you actually don't need that procedure." What, what they're seeing is inconsistency in how we practice uh, between facilities, even. And I think you know, if I had to sort of select one thing off the bat to try to change behavior, it would be really be providing you know reasonable data to individual physicians that allows them to see uh, you know their clinical practice variation within their groups to try to have a you know a healthy constructive conversation about the path forward using evidence-based care to reduce costs, enhance outcomes, improve the patient experience, so that we're much more consistent in our decision-making, and that those outside of our organizations actually see consistency in the decision-making. Because I think we all want the same things, uh, and there is some, some tension and conflict between you know, all of our mission. But at the end of the day, you know we, we, we do serve our patients, and they do want affordable, effective care that improves the overall quality of their life. Julia or Laura?
4: Yeah, I, I think the one thing that I don't do well enough is listen to the patient. I think I'm learning to ask that at the end of a clinic appointment. Did you hear me? Did you understand? Because I make that assumption. I think you've done great, because when I left Hopkins, we didn't have patients on everything, uh, and we didn't have appropriate patients on everything, so I think putting patients on hospital committees, putting patients on search committees, listening to your patients, because they are the ones that are going to walk out and say you're good. They're the ones that are going to say you're the place to be and they also can point out what's wrong. We do um, a different type of cusp rounds at Davis which are called best rounds where we go and visit lots of patients and come right back in real time make differences and they'll tell you what's good and bad. They're glad you're there uh, you don't tell them you're the dean or any. you just say I'm Julie what's up to do it and it's been really nice to do that real time piece uh, and we do that once a month but I I think listening to the patient more to drive what you do to need to do next, and trusting them that they're right is what I could do to improve how I run
3: my shop. So I'll have one really big, big goal, and I'll give a couple of very accomplishable goals. So I, I think, you know, the, the biggest problem for improving quality is as a, as a clinician or as anyone who's running things, we don't have access, actually, to what we do. It's really hard to improve things if you really don't have honest data on what you do. So this idea of creating these checklists so that you can that could be part of how you collect data, you can get routine feedback on what you do. That's the and, and to getting that into into the routine of care, I think that's the big audacious goal, but I think that could be very transformative. I think the second thing is, you know, we have medical scribes to help people take notes. But let's be honest, if you have the checklist, you don't need the medical scribe. What you need is a patient scribe. And one of the services we've developed that my colleague Jeff Belkor has developed is consultation planning is someone who goes and asks the patient what are their concerns. It's a very structured way of getting notes. We have an internship program of pre Uh, post-baccalaureate folks. We have 10 to 12 in our program. They come and they assist people in preparing for their consultation, and then they come in and actually help record it, and it's amazing. In a minute, you can find out what's really on somebody's mind, and it really allows you to make sure that you're organizing in and creating care that really matters to them because the data is where you start, the evidence is where you start, and then you have to adapt it to that person's um, situation. But if you don't know what it is... You know, you can't do it. That actually, And then just getting those conversations recorded so people can listen to them, that's actually an easily disseminatable technology. Um, then I think the third thing, again, is this bundled service. You know, I, I think that um, for the, um, one of the great accomplishments we had uh, through Athena is to create this wisdom trial. This is women informed to screen uh, depending on measures of risk. And it's PCORI-funded, and the idea is to take one of the biggest, most controversial uh, uh, issues in primary care, which is uh, breast cancer screening. Should it be annual? Should it be, you know, wh- when should it start? When should it stop? So to test personalized, vers- so we can say, well, let's take the best of risk, best of everything, personalize it, really understand, use the modern use- measures of risk and an understanding that cancer is heterogeneous, and create these services. PCORI said, fine. You got to have your hospital systems pay for the services, and since they were, it's a more cost-effective. We thought that would be easy. It turned out not to be, but we actually are struggling to be able to deliver that ourselves in our own hospital systems. So how do we do that? We're going to have to go to this idea of bundled payments, which I'm really excited to be collaborating with Robert on this. Uh, and you know, we're going to start with the pilot, hopefully at, at UCLA. But I think what this means is we have to set up systems that tell us how can we take a service and say, how can we do it better? How can we do it better and cheaper for a better product? And let that stand. That is quality. We are taking on a serious issue. We're trying to come up with innovation. And we're actually trying to find a way to get it covered on our own patients. We don't work hard enough to make our innovations accessible and available in our own institutions. And if we can do this cross-UC in a way that really demonstrates we are actually taking on hard challenges, that would be deserving of the title exceptionalism. But without being able to demonstrate that we can do it and deliver it in our own institutions, I would say we'll have to stand down.
1: You know, I think... um... I think that word exceptionalism also should apply to exceptional partner because at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to do everything. And I think that having true partners that we can say, okay... Um, for this kind of care, you go to this location we may and we 're partners with them um, is the way to go and I always feel it 's the right patient in the right location at the right time to get the right care and that may not be us all the time, but I think if we have exquisite partners who then have high quality, they have also have low costs I think we 're in the game
0: as um, you all know, this pressure to drive down costs and increase quality isn 't going away and in healthcare, we've largely focused on reducing the use of services for that. Uh, in every other industry, they've controlled costs by growing productivity, and productivity isn't even really on the policy d- d- discussion, and yet healthcare with education are the two industries that have negative p- productivity, despite healthcare spending enormously on IT. You know, examples of... Our clinicians spend over half their time documenting, no value added. Nurses spend 20% of their time looking for supplies, no value added. Nurses manually double-check pain medicines for about 18% of their time. When you could do an electronic double-check. So talk about ways that you think we may be able to grow productivity gains. Uh, There was a health affairs piece that was quite moving it said if healthcare would just get 4% productivity gains we can solve the healthcare cost problem 4% and there's probably 30% on the table that I was just talking about so ways that you think you see might begin to be leaders in driving these productivity gains
2: so productivity gains like you know I have to be a little bit cautious in terms of uh, you know how we how we message this in the, you know in, in the future for particularly for the physicians, uh, the physician workforce is vo- very vulnerable right now, very vulnerable for for two reasons. One, uh, the number of physicians that are age sixty and over is the highest it's ever been, and probably uh, very soon we're going uh, to in soon in this next several years or so we're going to be starting to lose right. very seasoned physicians, and that's going to be a, a major loss for us. At the same time, we, we're also seeing the highest burnout rates among physicians. The number of physicians reportedly that have, you know, symptoms of burnout may be as high as 40% in some, in some studies, uh, including, you know, some of are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, etc., some of the things that we thought were going to be highly productive for physicians, like the electronic medical record, is, is one of a number of potential contributors, actually, to physicians. Maybe burnout. major
0: contributors. <laughs> yeah.
2: I want to be careful because Mike Pfeffer, my colleague, is there, and he's done a, a great job with the EPIC implementation at UCLA. So I think we have the, the, the best one out there. But nevertheless, it is still, it is still a stressor for physicians. So what, what is productivity for physicians? Well, it, it, it has to be something that, that works for them in their natural workflow, in their, no, in their natural cognitive functions when they, when they interact with the, with the patient. And it has to be enjoyable. It has to be fun. And it has to be able to get them the outcomes that they need for their patients. And it requires being a bit disruptive. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we, we as you mentioned before, we sometimes have bought technology that doesn't always work well for our workflows. You know, uh, also contributing to, to the stress outside of, of EMRs. So um, I think it's something we're going to have to think really long and hard about because when we think about productivity, we're, we're thinking about you know how we can uh, you know build more widgets more efficiently. But it's a lot more than that. It's also about uh, you know uh, clinician health and wellness and uh, and making sure that they're in the Individual missions are satisfied as well.
3: So I'll, I'll, um, I'll take a crack at that. So, you know, I've talked about this idea of having these checklists where it's not everyone's not collecting their own, but we actually contribute to collecting a, a single source of truth. You and I talked about that. Um, so, but in order to do that, you can actually have to change process. So Uh, in preparation for trying to disseminate this, uh, we actually had a retreat with uh, our breast center at UCSF and and some of the people from UCSD, which would be the places we're going to try and pilot this, to really completely think about changing the workflow. Because that means that the first person, so the first, the patient who sends an information, that's the start of it. And we don't have to repeat it. We can actually use the data and double check it. Then the nurse navigator. And then you know, when the clinician comes in, they're not collecting all over again. They actually have the data at their fingertips, and they're just double-checking and verifying, and then finding out what that person wants. And it was just fascinating, because we had, you know, several physicians from different disciplines. We had, you know, we have a lot of nurses that are involved, nurse practitioners, and uh, genetic counselor, all the different people there talking about how they would imagine a completely different workflow and how much more fun it would be. And it was such, again, I, I think you talk about all those micro moments. And, and it was a, the, it, it, we started off with really a lot of team building and trying to figure out how we would work together. And then towards the end of the afternoon, really started thinking about, well, how would I change my process if I was doing it that way? And what would I need? Oh, yeah, and I would change what I do. And I think you can't imagine that you're going to just drop in technology and somehow keep doing the same thing you're doing. That's not going to work. So I I think this is the hard work of trying to think about, well, how would I use that? And how could I change my workflow? How could I imagine actually having a much more pleasant day and I could actually have the information at my fingertips go in and actually spend my time engaging with that patient? Um, I, I think giving people the opportunity to do that and harness their imagination and allow us to change our workflow and use modern technology tools that allow us to do that. That's so exciting, doesn't? You know, this the tools we have for the EMR actually collect information, collect orders. These are really important, but we need to also develop tools that are really about outcomes and quality and giving us information that aren't, you know, that don't take a heroic effort. You know that also help integrate our research organizations because that's everybody needs the same data, right. but we all don't have to collect it 20 times. You know we can do it once and focus on doing that and really focus on changing the workflow, and changing our concept of how we practice medicine. I think that would really be truly transformative. And um, you know it's not easy, uh, but it's fun and I think it's going to make people's lives better.
1: You know, if I were czar, I would just ask for one thing, and that is to help the 60-year-old physicians, and just in general, people, nurses, physicians, respiratory therapists need to just work at the top of their license. And I don't think in the UC system we allow them to do that. And so I shudder when I see somebody hiring a very high-priced nurse to do administrative work that at the end of the day could be done. It's just wrong on so many levels. And so sometimes we're the enemy because we feel like um, we're going to use people as tools, but not necessarily for actually what they went to school for, what they actually can bring to the table. And I think we need to really think about if we're going to really lower costs, if we're really going to have quality, you've got to let people work all the way to what they went to school for for and actually trained for.
0: I mean, summarizing this, as you all said, it's, you're going to need every employee engaged, energized, and empowered.
4: And as C's, we're a little bit away from that. Julie? My disclaimer is I'm 62. <laughs> um, so I don't think it's going to be bad if all these old physicians leave. OK, I think that we need to get away from that fear. Um, because... Um, the ones who- yeah, so I'm not, but I'm not sure that's going to be a problem. And actually, Jeff is out there. Jeff Wade at our place is spending time with individuals to teach them how to navigate the EMR, that one we have now, so they can get home and not be on the computer at night because we can monitor that. And the people that have the trouble are, you know, people my age and older, uh, but... I I think we need to to not worry about that. And I write a lot about burnout, and and we started looking at it in surgeons years ago before it was fashionable. And it's really based on resilience, and it's a lot what Laura just said. You've got to be happy in what you do, and you've got to have some joy. You've got to put it somewhere. So learning where to put your resilience and where to put your joy so that you can make it happen, it's good. And don't worry about the old people leaving. I mean, some of them should have left 10 years ago. And so I think empowering those young people people. That actually won't check the dad. Yeah, yeah, still fear. I don't check the dad. But remember, we used to not trust a soul. We used to repeat duplex scans and CT scans and we because you know that was what we did. So I think part of it is is that joy, that trust going across, getting individuals help when they need to do that, and then bringing in maybe some engineers or people that uh, we used to bring in biomedical engineers at Hopkins and we're doing that now at Davis that look at what we do and go, really? And then doing what they say don't asking them if you should just go do it and before you condemn it try it and that's so hard for us cuz we do rely on this and i totally agree with you letting people really work high through their license trusting them the person i missed the most when i left hopkins was the pa i worked with she was fabulous and so i think part of that is to learn how to work with all members of the team